0: Our Scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 22. going to start in verse 21 and go through chapter 23, verse 19. If you do not have a a hard copy of God's Word and would like one, there should be one somewhere in front of you, underneath a seat. Uh, This is on page 63 in that Bible. Exodus chapter 22, starting in verse 21. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. and My wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword. And your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, You shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest, from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother on the eighth day. You shall give it to me. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore, you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. You shall not spread a false false report. You shall not join hands with the wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil. Nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden... You shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous. For I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner. For you as sojourners in the land of Egypt. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and that the son of your servant woman and the alien, may be refreshed. Pay attention to all that I have said to you, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib. For in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed." You shall keep the feast of harvest, of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of in gathering at the end of the year, when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. The grass withers, the flowers fade. The Word of our God will stand forever. Last week, we saw the reality of living among God's people. We will sin against each other. The Old Testament death penalty was mentioned several times. Thankfully, that's been replaced by the death of Christ on our behalf. So we now practice repentance and forgiveness in the church. But we also have a duty to be light and salt to those around us. Much of the case law now shifts toward outward facing care toward each other and our neighbor. What does that look like? Firstly, caring for the vulnerable tangibly. Secondly, caring for each other legally. And thirdly, receiving care spiritually. Firstly, caring for the vulnerable tangibly. The remaining half of uh, chapter 22. First question would be, who are the vulnerable Uh, as a philosopher Nicholas Walterstorff has said, there is a quartet of the vulnerable in the Old Testament listed here. Sojourner, widow, orphan, poor. The sojourner could be termed a resident alien or someone living among the Israelites, but not necessarily an Israelite. Therefore, no landowners, no potential future financially. For various reasons, they found themselves... Traveling amongst the Israelites, Dr. Wright points out that rights for this particular group did not exist in the ancient Near East, except now in Israel. They have rights as resident aliens, they didn't have land, no security, easily exploited. Not so in God's people. The second group, and the third group could often be taken together. Widows and orphans. No man in the house. No landowner. No protection from a family. No retirement. No safety net. No health care insurance. No Medicare. No nothing. What's going to happen to these people? Some of the most vulnerable in Israel. They have to be named and they have to be cared for. And it was common practice in the ancient Near East to at least recognize these two groups for their obvious, obvious needs. But specifically with them, God says, if I hear their cry and you don't care, there is a reckoning. There is recompense if you don't pay attention to the widow and the orphan. The fourth group are the poor. And by that, Dr. Wright again says this is the very poor. The people who to be able to plant their seed in the ground would have to loan the clothes off their back the destitute the desperate the people who have no savings account for various reasons again are named and we have to say that all of the all of these four in the quartet even exist because of the significance the ramifications the effects of the fall The fall has separated us from God. It has separated us from creation. It has separated us from ourselves. It's separated us from each other. And there is desperation throughout all of the ancient Near East that Israel will not escape. There has to be something done about it. Who's going to do something about it? Who is to care for the vulnerable? Verse 28 kind of seems out of place. If you skip down, it says, you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. I think there's a connection to the imperatives that we are about to look at with regarding how to care for the vulnerable when he says, well, first off, don't revile God who's giving you all these commands and don't curse someone he's placed to rule over you. Here again, we see the balance of loving neighbor being connected to loving God. There's no disconnect from Sunday to Monday. If the Israelites do not obey God's commands to care in these ways, they're disrespecting, they're disregarding, they're reviling God Himself. But how else are they going to revile Him if they're not doing these things? It says, disrespecting or cursing a a ruler who's supposed to be making sure that these people obey. We've already seen this in the book of Exodus. Jethro says to Moses, why are you doing this by yourself? He's sitting there adjudicating all of these cases about all of this case law day and night constantly because we saw last week Guess what God's people do to each other? We sin against each other. Who cares ultimately for the vulnerable in the house of God? Who makes sure that they're cared for? The rulers. A secondary cause God will use in His providential care for the vulnerable. is through the elders. The under-shepherds. Of God's people. Yes. They are imperfect sinners. Which is why there's a plurality. These are chiefly the men who are to make sure the vulnerable are cared for. God's people are supposed to be obeying all of these commands. And they need to be held accountable to doing these things. But how? How will the leaders help? these individuals do these things what what are they supposed to be doing how do we care for the vulnerable there's a list don't wrong a sojourner or oppress him don't mistreat the widow or the fatherless don't lend money to the very very poor in your midst in the household of god with interest that's what we do naturally all of us take advantage Oppress, step on and over, collect as much as we can for ourselves. And God says, No. No. Direct commands against all of these things. Direct commands to care for the quartet of the vulnerable among you, to not revile the Lord. To not revile those people who are holding you accountable to do such things. Why? Why would we not take advantage? Why would we not step on and step over even people sitting next to us in the pew here? Specifically for our own reputation or for our own financial gain. Why would we not do that? Why would we not oppress each other? and Put ourselves first. And act in total selfishness. Why won't we do that? Verse 21 gives us the answer. For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You mean we're not better? We're not smarter? We're not better looking? The Lord didn't just pick us out of a lineup because we're the best? No. No. We don't oppress because we were oppressed. Well, these people knew that. Even a few generations ago, they were in the land of Egypt. They were enslaved. They had no Sabbath rest. They had no rights. They were oppressed in every way. And God says, well, then why would you do that to someone else? I saved you from that. I brought you... Out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, out of bondage. Don't put other people in bondage. Don't oppress. Don't revile. You were brought out of that. You remember Exodus chapter 2, verse 24, when they were being crushed, what did God do? He heard. He heard. They're groaning. He responded. He acted. He saved them. Here at the end of verse 27, he says, and if he cries to me, I will hear for I am compassionate. That word in Hebrew, if it was translated in Greek, would be the same word that we Received this warning as an assurance of pardon and comfort for our sin from the Apostle Paul to Titus chapter 3. In Christ we've received mercy. That's what that word means. God is merciful. He's compassionate. And you and I have received that mercy. Eternally Spiritually, holistically, an eternal life where Jesus will come back and restore all of creation holistically. All of creation will be renewed and restored without sin. Why? Because God showed us, sinful oppressors, mercy. Not because of righteousness that we have done. But because of the righteousness that he has done for us. What are the means that God has given his people to to carry out this care, though? To carry out this spiritual, holistic wealth? Where do we get the resources? Verses 29 through 31 give us some of the answers. The Israelites care for the poor out of their giving of the tithe. It says, we give Him our best, our first 10% at a minimum. We also consecrate our firstborn, symbolically symbolizing our families first belong to the Lord. Not to king and to country and to employer. But to the Lord. It doesn't mean... We all send our firstborn to seminary. But it means we devote our whole family to Him holistically. Because my life is His. My children are His. My clothing is His. My 401k is His. My savings account is His. My income is His. Of course, he's given me to steward all of these things, and he's telling me how to. How are they going to have the resources to absorb the cost of caring for the widow and the orphan and the absolutely destitute amongst their people and the sojourners who may be casualties of war who are not related to them, even ethnically? He says the giving. There's going to be a storehouse amidst God's people where needs are met. Spiritually, physically, emotionally, holistically. Where are we going to get the people to do these things? I'm giving my firstborn as a consecration to the Lord. My whole family belongs to you, Lord. We have, we have an army of individuals and of resources to take care of whatever need there is, because this is God's family. And we have become outward facing. Because that's what the Lord Jesus did for us. That's what God did in the Exodus. He took His people back, not so they could care for themselves, but so they could reflect His glory to the nations. How? Doing these things. In obedience. Think about the illustration from the Apostle Paul in Second Corinthians chapter eight. He's writing to the Corinthians, and he's encouraging them in their giving. He says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. But they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints, and this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord by the will of God to us. He's challenging these ethnic Greeks in Corinth to take up an offering for Jewish converts in Jerusalem. And he says, they don't have a whole lot of money. They have their own issues. They're afflicted. They asked us to take part in this relief effort because they dedicated themselves first to the Lord and then to us by the will of God as he testifies in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. So the giving of tithes, offerings, family members, ourselves, whatever it takes, is not a way to earn salvation or a way to earn favor from the Lord. It's a response. Because we've gained favor. Not because of anything that we've done to earn it. Because we couldn't. But out of a response of a compassionate, merciful God who transforms lives, to turn us away from just ourselves and inwardness, to give holistically. And that, ultimately, is a task that's laid at the feet of elders, to model and to maintain amongst the people of God. And praise be to the Lord that in the New Testament, often we may have deacons to help us in the mobilization of giving and in mercy ministry to care tangibly for the vulnerable. That's not an option. Giving's not an option. We'll see that further in a minute. How do we care for each other legally? Which dips a little bit back into what we were talking about last week with sinning against one another. How does the gospel change this? Caring for each other legally in chapter 23, the first three verses, means that we are honest witnesses. Eyewitness testimony was everything in that culture. There's no DNA testing, there's no videotapes. Eyewitness testimony. Someone's life, someone's reputation, someone's financial future, all depends on what you say. What does it say there to do? Don't spread a false report. Don't join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. Don't fall in with the many to do evil or to bear the witness in a lawsuit siding with the many. Don't be partial just because someone's poor. Not options. Imperatives. Commands. Sinful temptations that are fought rather than succumbed to. Even in the court of law against brother and sister. Even against a poor person. The counter-narrative is running in our minds in our current day. Is someone innocent because of their color of skin or guilty or because they're this class or that class or because they're poor or because they're rich? Justice is blind, shows no favoritism. Why do we say that today? Because of this, because it's here in the Torah. No favoritism, no false reports. No siding just because more, someone has more witnesses. No siding with this person because we like them more. They're our family member. They're our neighbor. They're our coworker. They look like us. No favoritism in a court of law. In Old Testament, Israel. What if we're a victim? In Israel, there will be non-vindictive victims. Verses 4 and 5. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it, and you shall rescue it with him. You may be the victim of some dispute brought to elders. The case is pending verdict, pending trial. You see them with the flat tire on the side of the road. You drive by yelling at them, saying, well, God's justly punishing you. Or do you love your enemy? As someone once famously said, love the enemy. Don't drag out vengeance on your own against another sheep in this community. Don't be vindictive. Even if someone else's a property. Don't take it out on someone else. Turn their hearts with how you love them. We don't throw away justice. We don't throw away the court case. But we certainly don't act like pagans to each other. Also, And again, in caring for each other legally, hopefully there are faithful leaders. Verses 6-9 to seems to shift directly towards the rulers or judges or elders who are going to be adjudicating these cases to say they shouldn't pervert justice that's due to the poor in a lawsuit. They are your people. God has entrusted to you. Says verse 6. Verse 7, keep far from my false charge and do not kill the innocent or righteous and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. We saw this last week. The book of Proverbs tells us someone may bring a report and seem right until others follow him. To say the, the first word is not necessarily the right word. Cases take time to develop. Disputes amongst each other take time to resolve. Well, did they really say that? Did they really mean that? Were there any witnesses? There are strict instructions to how to adjudicate these cases which are going to happen amongst God's people. God gives the warning to these leaders, I will not acquit the wicked But then, verse 8, is a clear prohibition against taking bribes. Again, of course, this is going to be a temptation even in Israel. Well, I mean, it really was my ox that gored his ox. But I've got a hundred temple shekels under my mattress. If you'd go over there and get it, we could just make that go away. That'd be tempting for a a ruler or an elder to say, hmm. God says, no bribes. No favoritism. Regardless of how much this may hurt, depending on who is the guilty party, you're going to adjudicate justice as a light to the nations who don't do this. And because these are all my sheep, regardless of who they are in your community, there will be justice. Verse 9, You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Again, legally they don't have land. Legally, they seem to not have rights in any other country. And you're not going to use that as an excuse to oppress them in a court of law. Legally. Legally. What, is this? what does this all mean for these faithful elders in this context? What are the expectations of the Israelites for their leaders that they would do all of these things? If you read further in the Old Testament, you'll see that that doesn't quite happen. Particularly in the book of Ezekiel, the shepherds eat the sheep, they feed themselves they go into exile. There's warnings even in the New Testament. 1 Timothy 5:17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Before we get too excited about that. James chapter 3, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Expect, expect high expectations if you're an elder. Expect each other to hold high expectations of you. Expect this of your elders. But besides myself, I mean, I do have a a family myself, but they also have jobs. Many of the elders here, they've got their own ox and their own field, their own vineyard. And they've got to get involved in everybody else's mess too. There has to be prayer and consideration for the weighty task. But this is what God designed. We didn't invent Presbyterianism with the Apostle Paul. What we're doing, we see as a reflection of what's going on in Exodus. Exodus. It is exceedingly grave to be a leader. And so how are we going to do it? How are we as leaders going to do it? How are we as sheep going to follow? How are any of us going to care for the vulnerable? How are any of us going to see our hearts changed away from ourselves and hoarding our stuff to being generous? Verses 10 through 19 in chapter 23 show us how we receive care spiritually. Verses 10 through 12 give us Sabbath effects. Isn't that cool? Not side effects, but Sabbath effects. I thought long and hard about that. Verse 10. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow that the poor of your people may eat and what they leave the beast of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. And it continues. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest that your ox, your donkey may have rest, the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. There is a connection again that God is pointing to between what they're going to do on the Sabbath and what they're going to do the rest of the week. There is a physical connection to say all that you're trying to do in justice for the poor and the oppressed, for the widow and the orphan, is rooted in what you're doing on the Sabbath. If you're not resting your land, you've got nothing to offer the poor. They're not saying all of Israel, one year and seven, feed the poor. They're all in different cycles depending on when they started their field, et cetera, et cetera, so that the poor are always given something to eat. Why? Because of the Sabbath. How am I going to have the spiritual energy to adjudicate cases as an elder when I have my own family rest and worship on the Sabbath? How am I going to obey as a victim without being vindictive the sabbath why what do we discuss on the sabbath redemption reconciliation mercy forgiveness not participating in the sabbath rest and worship you'll be crushed by the weight of ministry Whether you're a woman in the church, an elder, a deacon, you won't keep up. You won't be able to do it. You'll waste away. Which is why verse 13 says that to receive spiritual care, there must be spiritual obedience. Pay attention to all that I have said to you and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Stop trying to pick and choose which of the commandments are relevant for today or relevant for your life or relevant and convenient. It's all relevant. It's all, in a sense, inconvenient because we're all sinners that are being corrected by God constantly. By His Word. Friends, God demands total allegiance. Total obedience. No idolatry. Repentance from sin. Make no mention of the names of other gods, nor even let it be heard on your lips. Stay far from materialism and chasing our money and chasing our stuff and chasing the comfort of a certain kind of schedule and follow God's word. And finally, rhythmic worship gives us spiritual care to sustain us through all of this. Three festivals annually celebrated, verses 14 to 18. The Feast of Unleavened Bread in April, associated with the Passover and with redemption from Egypt. The Feast of Harvest, or the Feast of Weeks, occurs 50 days after the grain harvest, where they brought their first fruits to God. No one comes empty handed, and we bring our best. Then the feast of in gathering or booths at the end of the autumn harvest. Which again, don't come empty handed. Bring the first fruits, not the scraps, to God, because that's a reflection of what we think of him. And that's a reflection of our faith in him, of our trust in him. Do I have enough? God says yes. God says give. And God says do these three feasts, which two of which align with the resurrection and with Pentecost and the time of year that they are celebrated. We have a greater feast of ingathering, feast of booths, Passover meal, story of redemption. It's the crucifixion the second person of the Trinity, for all of our sins. It is His resurrection to give us eternal, physical, holistic hope. Then, He gave us His Spirit the day of Pentecost to indwell us, to guide us into His Word, which is truth. We're left without excuse. May we be a people who care tangibly, legally, for all of God's people. But who do so not in our own strength, but in obedience to His Word. Regarding worship, let us pray together. Lord Christ, we thank You for how these feasts and festivals, they each point to You and Your work of redemption. And how we are reminded even in the Old Testament that what we are to do to the vulnerable is not because it's the right thing or because it's cool but because we were vulnerable in our sin. You showed us compassion, God the Father, by sending the Son. You showed us mercy, Jesus our great high priest, by dying in our place. May we respond financially in our, the use of our time and even loving our enemies because that's what you have done for us. Christ, then we pray. Amen.